Well, last week we finished off chapter 19, but I just want to read the end there because it kind of ties right into chapter, the beginning of chapter 20. Today we're going to be talking about the rebellion of Sheba, and uh, we'll see if we get into chapter 21 or not, but I put it on the back of your outline there just in case. Um, so if you look there at the end of chapter uh, 19... Uh, it says, all the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. And you remember w- what happened here. Um, the, the northern, or the, the tribes of, the, the ten tribes of Israel reached out and said, hey, we want to allow David to be our king once again. And then um, they, David caught wind of that. And instead of reaching out to them, he reached out to the people of Judah, which was his kind of his 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 clan. And he said, hey, Israel wants me back as your king. Why don't you help me with this process? Verse 41, it says, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to our king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away? So what Judah did was they went and they said, hey, David, let's let us take you to Jerusalem. And they kind of cut out the other tribes from including them at that point. And uh, uh, they got jealous. I mean, basically, that's what happened. And it says that uh, why did they stole you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him. And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is our close relative. So they said, well, this, you know, he's one of us. Why have you angry over this matter? And... Uh, uh, and the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have ten shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why did you despise us? In other words, we, they're just act, asking for the common courtesy of being included in this process. And you remember, um, uh, David reached out and made um, their Absalom's commander, basically, uh, his commander, and he uh, uh, kind of rebuffed Joab in that process, trying to reach out to the other side. And so he, he did that as, as a result of trying to bring all these people together. And verse 1 of chapter 20 tells us that as a result of Absalom's kind of rebellion and Remember, he was kind of whispering in the ears of people, well, David's not really, shouldn't be the king, and kind of won people over his favor. Uh, some of that sentiment was still around. And so that's where we kind of pick up here in chapter 20, and you see this individual called Sheba, who was really a, a troublemaker. And uh, it says, there happened to be, <coughs> they're a worthless man. <coughs> that means basically he was worthless in the process of restoring the kingship back to David doesn't mean it wasn't really speaking of his personal character, uh, but he wasn't helping the process. Whose name was Sheba, the son of uh, Bitri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So Sheba basically had an uprising here. He was a Benjamite, and he began to lead a rebellion against restoring David as their king. Now remember, David is not <coughs> necessarily 
always the people's choice, but he's who? He's God's choice. So you have to keep that in the back of your mind. So if you're rebelling against David, you're really rebelling against God. Um, and it, it, it basically furthers this example of, of David overcoming opposition. It's very similar to Absalom's rebellion. And uh, it has a direct tie to that contention that was recorded, I just read there in chapter 19. But um, it seemed, the revolt seemed at first more than, more, more of, a, of a threat than anything. And with a minimum amount of bloodshed, it was resolved in, in contrast to what happened with Absalom, which cost many individuals their lives. And so you, you have in this chapter uh, this rebellion of Sheba. You have the murder of uh, Amasa, uh, the, the commander by Joab. And all this, basically, um, you see Joab's character unfold, and he, you can see how patriotic he is. He, uh, he's, he already disobeyed the king once in chapter 19. Remember when <coughs> David said, don't, <coughs> don't hurt Absalom? <coughs> well, just do it. get rid of him. He's, you know, he's, he revolted and he deserves death, so I'm just going to take it upon myself to do it. And you can see where David was a little hesitant <coughs> to put this guy back into authority. But you also see almost David being lame in his presence because he doesn't really do anything as, as this guy uh, almost kind of takes over. But uh, there's no doubt that David was intensely loyal, or that Joab was intensely loyal to David. Um, but he had a very um, narrow view, you might say, of how this kingdom thing was going to work. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that have a very narrow view of how um, the church should work and, and the mission of the church. And, and it really harms the, the mission of the church in the, in the, the broader sense. I mean, there's, there are churches that believe in things like secondary separation. You know, if you don't believe in the King James Bible, you're, you're not part of the body of Christ. Just crazy things like that. All right, they have a very narrow view. <clears throat> and, and it doesn't help the cause of Christ. And that's kind of what Joab was. He had a very narrow view of what was going on here. And at all cost, he was going to make sure that David was the king. Now, that works out for God's plan. But... Um, it wasn't always carried out in the most gracious way. Now, who was Sheba? We don't know a lot of, about him. There's, there's basically nothing known about him. He must have been a person of influence <coughs> because he created a, a rebellion and, and sedition with just a, a, a short amount of time here <coughs> with limited resources. Um, but we know that he belonged to Saul's tribe and um, whether he was actually you know, loyal to that, whatever, um, you know, he seemed to sought to overthrow David's authority in Israel. And so there was, there, there was an issue there. And so that's what he does. He, he basically is everybody's <coughs> preparing to usher David into the thing. And it seems like this little squabble with Israel was kind of dealt with. Well, he takes advantage of it. You know, he takes advantage of that, that, Division, he gets his foot in the door, and pretty soon he's raising up people in opposition to David. And so it says in, in, in verse 2 there, All the men of Israel withdrew from David and follow Sheba, the son of uh, victory. Uh, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from 
the Jordan to Jerusalem. So David's own people stuck with him in spite of all this other stuff. And it kind of goes to answer why they maybe weren't included to begin with. But um, overall, they, they should have been. And that's why they got kind of ticked off at first. And, and so you see here, you know, this conspiracy develop. You see his concern beginning in verse 7. And David came to the house of Jerusalem. And the king took the ten concubines... Remember, before when Absalom took over, what did he do? He went back to Jerusalem, and what's the first thing he did? He took the ten concubines of David the king, took them out in the city square where everyone could see, and, and basically had relationships with them to, to, to kind of show everybody, look, I'm in control here. David isn't. And so the first thing David did when he went back to Jerusalem, because these women were now defiled, um, the king took the ten concubines, concubines who he had, uh, he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not have any relationships with them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in win, uh, widowhood. So you could see that he was, you know, kind of dealing with this uh, in a way that was kind of uh, appropriate, you might say. Um, but he didn't, um, you kind of feel sorry for these, these women in a way. They're kind of like just you know, uh, issues of, the, of the, what, what, what went on here. Um, they're kind of pawns in the whole thing. But verse 4 tells us that the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together. Remember, he's their commander now. Uh, to me within three days and be here yourself. So here you have um, uh, David issuing this order once again to his, his commander and he, he tries probably his best to quickly assemble the men of Judah and it was more a, a reliance on a civilian militia rather than a professional army um, I think, think Joab was more the professional soldier here. He probably could have done this with his eyes closed. But it was Amasa who held the position, so he instructed Amasa to quickly get these guys together. And um, it took him more than three days, which was had predicted, and, and David turned the task over to Abishai, who was, remember, Joab's brother. So all of a sudden... You know, David's kind of in a concerned panic here, thinking, okay, wait a minute, I gave this guy this order. He's not back. Did he go to the other side? What's happening? He's already had people defect before, so he's thinking, okay, what do I do here? And um, and so in verse 6, David said to Abishai, now, Sheba, the son of Abitri, went, will, will do more harm than Absalom. In other words, if we don't, get a hold of this guy, he's going to really raise up a lot of opposition because he's intent on that, and we need to take care of business here. Um, take the Lord's servants and pursue him. So he kind of ditches Amasa as the, the leader and, and gives that role over to uh, Abishai, who is Joab's brother. And uh, it says, lest he himself... Uh, escape to the fortified cities and escape from it. So once he gets into the si- inside of these cities, he's, he's really 
in a roundabout way, going to be almost untouchable. That would have been a very difficult battle for them to, to deal with. And so his concern was valid. And then it tells us that they went after him, verse 7. They went out after him, and it says Joab's men, because he was basically, all these men were trained by Joab's, and Abishai's kind of the guy that David told to do it. But you can see that uh, Joab uh, literally kind of took the reins. And the Cherethites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men, and they went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of uh, Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in uh, Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. So here he comes thinking, okay, I'm a little late, but I'm here. Uh, now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, it is well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. So grabbed him by the head and went to give him a kiss. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach. And in, in Joab's mind, he's just removing obstacles here. He's just saying, okay, this guy potentially is not loyal. David gave him a, an order. He didn't return in time. So uh, obviously he's not competent. So uh, he's just an unfortunate uh, consequence of war. And he spilled his entrails into the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. And so you can see that that Joab is kind of a a no-nonsense guy here. He's not here to make friends and influence people. He's here to take care of business. He's here to carry out um, what he believes, not even what he was ordered to do. You know, he's kind of a rogue commander at this point and he's out there taking care of business and it was really a, a an act that was preconceived by job because you can tell because he used some trickery to pull it off um had job met amasa in battle um he would have slain him but here he he met him kind of in a peaceful situation and uh he realized that okay this guy's not not helping David any, so we're just going to get rid of him. And that's what he did. We're not really told how all this goes down, but David, um, uh, I think once David replaced Joab with Amasa in the first place, he was, he was in the way of, of Joab carrying out his duty. And sooner or later, unfortunately, he was going to go. And so it was, it was clear that uh, Joab, not David, was responsible um, for the death of Absalom's commander. It, that's, that's exactly, David didn't order him to do this or whatever. So it could be, you know, kind of looked at as a, as a cold act of, of murder. But it, it goes on there and it tells us what they, they did because um, it says, in Amasalei wallowing, Uh, or actually in verse uh, uh, 10 there, then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of of Bichri. And so they just go on with business, like, hey, this is casualty of war, let's move on. And and one of Joab's men took his stand by Amasa. Now remember, he was their commander. 
So, you know, war is odd at times, and sometimes things happen, and loyalties are, are divided. So, you know, they didn't want to, they didn't want to um, disgrace the body of Amasa, but it says who, he kind of, they kind of use it as an illustration. Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab as he's standing over the slain body of Amasa. So, you know, if you don't, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you can choose on your own. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by, seeing him, stopped. And when the men and when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. Why? It was a distraction. It was a, it was a distraction from the mission. So, okay, we'll just get rid of this guy, put him over here in the field, and cover him up so nobody sees him anymore. When he was taken off the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of uh, Bichri. So you see the loyalty that Joab has as a commander. I mean, these guys probably would follow him, you know, to hell and back. I mean, they just, he's just an incredible military mind and soldier, and he just does things in a very, um, maybe what they would view, an efficient way. And, uh, and yet, it's not always right <laughs> what, he, what he does, but, you know, in war stuff happens. So verse 14, it tells us what actually happens here. Sheba passes through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah. And all the, 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 uh, the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. So they, they go to this this town and all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of, of Beth Makkah. So he gets to one of these cities that's somewhat fortified and it says they cast up a mound against the city so they built a um, they would have high walls around the city so you couldn't really assault it because they'd shoot you with arrows so the only way to really breach the city would be build a ramp up to it and you can see this over in Israel even to this day where um, where they the uh, 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 the Jews were assaulted, and you see the the remaining of this ramp that comes up against these giant walls, and uh, it's it's just it's amazing how they would they would come up with this stuff, and and so here they they built this mound against the city and it stood against the rampart and they were battering the wall to throw it down so they're ready to breach the 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 wall down of this city and pretty much at that point um, knowing Joab. If you're in that city, you're dead. <laughs> you know, he's not going to, oh, you're a good person, you're not. So it's going to be women, children, whatever. That's just a, a casualty of war. As long as we get Sheba um, and take him out, then we've accomplished our mission. And it says there in verse 16, a wise woman, probably a judge in the city, called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. So here all of a sudden this, this, this lady appears, uh, probably at the top of the wall there where they're assaulting it. And apparently uh, she is one of the, the counselors or, or city rulers or judge or whatever. And um, she says that she was a, a woman of peace. Uh, and she wants Joab, the commander, and so he came near to her because she wasn't a threat, obviously. And the woman said, are you Joab? Verse 17. And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. So she has respect for this guy. She knows his, 
character. She knows who he is. And he answered, I'm listening. What do you have to say? And then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel and so settle a matter. And what she's re- referring to here is kind of in within the, the, the history and law of, of Israel. Before they would go in and wipe out a complete city, there was all, they were always supposed to give these individuals a chance for them to uh, be peaceful about it. So look, we're either going to wipe you out as a whole city or you can come out here and admit your wrongs or whatever and we'll deal with you however we deal with you, but at least not everybody will be killed. So they had some kind of a a deal there and this is what this lady's saying. Wait a minute, before you wipe out this whole city, Joab, because she knew he would without even thinking about it, it's good to ask counsel. And then in verse 19, she says, I am one of the ones who are peaceable. In other words, I'm a judge. I, I, I can give you counsel on this. I can work with you. What do you want? You don't need to kill everybody. And faithful in Israel, she says, you seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. In other words, we're, this, is, this is part of, of Israel too. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And in other words, you're, you're, you're acting too quickly here. This can be worked out. We can work out a deal. Not everybody needs to die in this situation. You should give peace a chance. <laughs> so Joab answers, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. In other words, I'm not here to kill everybody. That's a switch. Yeah. A couple right, exactly. And so he, he's, he's, and this is why I'm saying he's a, he's a commander in the army, but he's not failed to reason. You know, if the enemy's willing to give, give him something that he wants, then, hey, he'll listen. He's not this bloodthirsty nut that's just out there, you know, killing people for sport. You know, he just has a mission to do, and it's to take out Sheba. And so the lady knows that, and he, she, he says, oh, I'm not here. That's not true. But a, a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. In other words, that's what I want. I want that individual, and I know he's here because we followed him here. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. So he's pretty forthright in his, you know, request. And the woman said to Joab, which was very wise on her part, behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Now that shows a couple things. It shows that they had no loyalty to Sheba. Okay, this guy was on an Aaron's fool, uh, a fool's Aaron. But at the same time, she was very wise in the, in the idea that, you know, hey, we're going to give up one to preserve the many. Um, and he was, it's not that he, you know, he was guilty, obviously. And so verse 22, then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and basically told the people of the town, hey, we got this guy in here and... Uh, if we don't give him up, it's game over. Obviously, they didn't believe in the, the, uh, the, uh, the Af- Af- Afghanistan idea that you're to protect those who enter your city. If, you know, some of those people believe that. As, uh, I think the, 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 uh, the one movie depicted of the one military guy that was caught in that village, and, and they actually protected him at, the, at, the, at their own lives. Uh, risk, um, even though he was American, and um, 
they did that because that was just part of their culture. If you're a guest, you're, there, you're under their protection, and they protected his life from the Taliban. Well, obviously, they didn't get that memo. So they said, yeah, lop his head off, <coughs> and they had a little volley with his head over the wall, and um, they threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city. He was a man of his word. He said, hey, you know, this is, they, they did what they said, let's go. And every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. And so you have this, you know, undoing of, of Sheba here. He ends tragically, but really, like I said, he was on a uh, fool's errand thinking that he was going to go against God's anointed king. Um, and then in verse 23, it kind of gives the breakdown of who who was part of David's uh, uh, kind of leadership there. And it gives a, a list of the key players in his his government at this point because it's all in transition. And it's similar to the list back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8. And all, most of the names are the same. Joab is the commander once again. And you say, well, how did he, uh, why did David make him the commander again? Well, he didn't. He just kind of <laughs> took that role over. And I don't think David was bold enough to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, <laughs> what happened to Amasa? What, wh- where's Abishai? You know, why are you in charge now? And I think, you know, it was just uh, maybe just his leadership skill that put him back in that position. And then you had uh, ben, uh, Benaniah is still in charge of David's personal bodyguard. Jehoshaphat is still the recorder. You have the priest named in the name of Sheba. He was a scribe. Um, some translations have his name in Second Samuel eight seventeen as uh, Shereah. It's the same individual, apparently. Um, the only new office that seems to develop there is Adoram, who was in charge of forced labor. Uh, the, the, uh, the King James in that verse uses the word revenue. Um, we don't know much about it, but that's, that's what was there. And then also we don't know anything about Ira, the, the Jerite, or the nature of his office at all. It doesn't really tell us. And so y- you have this, this story where it's very, um, the underlying tones here are, okay, you have this individual who basically comes against God, Sheba, and is um, set out to overthrow his uh, his kingship, and he ends in this this miserable uh, situation with his head cut off. And but the picture there is the sacrifice of one saved what the many. All right, and it 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 really does have an underlying tone of Christ taking upon our sin. And now Sheba wasn't innocent as Christ was. And that's where the illustration breaks down. But it does give a picture of that. That Christ, you know, the Bible says that sin entered into the world through one man. And yet through one man, all, everyone is, is saved through Christ's sacrifice. And so uh, it was, it's just an interesting um, picture there. And then, you know, the end of these, these last four chapters here are really set between the revolt of Sheba and... Uh, uh, the other guys bid for the throne. And it's, it's, it's kind of unfolds that way. But 
in, in, verse tw- or in chapter 21 is you have really the, some call it the transgression of Saul, what happened with these group of people called the Gibeonites. And this, once again, has a picture of salvation. It has a picture of uh, redemption for us. And so we can just kind of continue through this. It says, now there was a famine in the lands in the, in the days of David for three years, year after year. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we've been there was, you know, in a drought in California for many years prior to all this rain we had. But, you know, and, and they were freaking out. Can you imagine when we had a famine? I mean, what would that be like? I mean, that's a pretty intense time. And and it's usually the result of God's judgment. And so you got to go back and you got to say, well, why was this famine there? Uh, Why did they experience this? Uh, David uh, really recognized it as divine discipline. If you look at Deuteronomy Chapter 28, it tells us Deuteronomy 28, 47 and 48. Deuteronomy 28, verse 47 and 48, it says, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, because of the abundance of all things therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the lord will send against you in hunger and thirst okay there you have it in nakedness and lacking everything and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you and so it's famine the point is famine is a a picture of god's judgment in a very real real sense and so they had this famine going on here for for several years three years year after year and david being the spiritual man that he was what's he do he turns to god it says right there and david sought the face of the lord and so he's like why is this happening he wants to know he wants to know why why they're in this this state of famine um and he wanted a a reason from the lord why this was happening So he asked the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. And now you've got to go back here all the way to Joshua chapter 9, basically, to figure this one out because who were the Gibeonites and, and what was going on here? Well, if you remember in Joshua 9, it talks about the Gibeonites and their deception. And they knew that when Israel came into the land, <coughs> they were going to uh, wipe everybody out. They were supposed to wipe everybody out. They couldn't coexist with these individuals. Uh, they weren't allowed to. And um, Saul, uh, you know, at that time, basically, they were, they were under this um, threat of being wiped out. So what they did is they... They made themselves up to be like from a faraway land. They were living right there where they weren't supposed to be. <laughs> but they, they made up themselves like they were old and, you know, the whole story. You can read it for yourself. And so they kind of put on these costumes and they went to Israel and they said, well, we're from this faraway land and we want to be your neighbors and we want to live with you folks and we want to become part of your people. 
and basically uh, uh, Joshua made a, a pact with them, okay? And he agreed uh, that, I think it's in verse, uh, verse uh, well, verse, I was going to say verse 9. Verse 9 begins to tell it from a very distant country. Your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. We have heard the report of time and all um, that he did in Egypt. And so they're kind of playing up to, kissing up to the God of Israel. Um, and then in verse 11, so our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go out to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Right there, verse 11. Here is our bread. It was still warm when, when we, we took it from our houses and as our food on our journey, and they made it sound like they'd been traveling forever where well, they weren't. They were right next door. <laughs> All right. So verse 15 says, Joshua made peace with them, and he made a covenant with them, and he let them live, which was against what God told them to do, but that's what he did. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So here they have this, this covenant with these people that should have been wiped out, well, advance in time, and you have uh, Saul, basically, who takes over. And what does he do? Uh, he wipes out <laughs> the Gibeonites, the people that Israel had a covenant with, a standing covenant with. And uh, when he did that, he brought on what is described here in verse 1, is this blood guilt on Saul and his household, because he put the Gibeonites to death. And so we have to understand that this, this depiction was very um, real back in their, in their day. This was a very serious thing. When you had a covenant with somebody, you would never break the covenant. I mean, it was a binding contract. And um, it was a result of this sin that was committed by, by Saul when he slain all these Gibeonites. And... Uh, I mean, Saul, to defend him, <laughs> he was probably just trying to do what God originally told them to do. These people were supposed to be wiped out. Um, they were in the land of Israel. They took possession of it. They shouldn't have been there. But they deceived Joshua into making this covenant with them. And um, it was no small matter to God. And it kind of, they reaped the consequences here of someone else's actions. Um, and so Saul wipes out the Gibeonites, and now here all of Israel basically is going hungry as a result of that. Kind of sounds like one man sinning and everybody else <laughs> having to deal with the consequences of that sin. Um, so verse 2, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. So David has a meeting with them. He reaches out to them, which is, you know, just his way of dealing with things. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, <coughs> but were a remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? So David reaches out to them, and you see he extends <coughs> kind of... Uh, uh, mercy here uh, and he, he says what, what can I do how can I make atonement see that word 
that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. Heritage of the Lord basically means Israel. And so how can we fix this? What can we do here uh, to make this right? Now, a couple things that you have to understand. <coughs> when you speak of atonement, I mean, that's what Christ did for us, right, on the cross. Um, so he's, he's basically saying, how can we resolve this, this issue? You know, atonement has to be made. There has to be something that fixes this problem. Uh, we would use the word propitiation, okay? Uh, propitiation basically, you know, has to do with uh, uh, taking away, all right, um, that, that reconciling, satisfying, you might say, um, God and his justice, even though something was done. It, it means to kind of remove the, the guilt, to, to deal with it. Okay, but for that to happen, to be restored into that fellowship, for propitiation has to, first there has to be expiation, which means you have to make amends. You have to have something that, that puts this back to the way it should be. And so you have those two elements here. Um, expiation means out of or from. So expiation has to do with removing something or, or taking something away. That's what Christ did, right, on the cross. He paid for our sins. He took them away. Uh, it has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty um, or the act of offering an atonement. And that's what they're, that's what David's going to the, the Gibeonites. He's saying, how can we make this all right? Um, and so propitiation is actually the action that changes God's attitude toward it. So he no longer looks at us in judgment or wrath because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Now we are, are restored to fellowship with him and um, favor with him. And so that's what David wants here with this, this Gibeonite people. And so he's not denying them that, you know, he's first he's admitting, right? Yeah, this was obviously an issue. Something went on here that wasn't right. And uh, uh, the Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his household. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. So wisely, they kind of capitulate on their own and say, look, we're not after a payoff here. You know, that's, that's not what we're about. Um, it's a matter of justice. It's a matter that, you know, this, this covenant was broken and uh, it wasn't right. And so he said, uh, well, what do you say that I should do for you? David, once again, he appeals to them and says, what do you want me to do? I mean, we can fix this somehow. And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place at all in the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So, you know, it's kind of an odd thing for us to think today how, how this kind of plays out here. But this is really... Um, you know, it's, it's the same thing with us. It would be like God saying, okay, well, I'll just forgive everybody. Christ doesn't have to die. There doesn't have to be a sacrifice for your sin. I'll just be nice. And free. He couldn't do that. It wouldn't be just. It wouldn't be right. 
He wouldn't be a just God if he did that. And they're, they're going by the same thing. They're actually being very gracious <laughs> to this because a lot more than seven of them died when Saul went on his rampage with him. And so you see here this thing kind of uh, playing out. And, you know, he, they just said, you know what, there's been, you know, this drought on us. How do we fix it? We, we don't want to continue to go on like this. And the answer was, well, you've got to deal with this issue with the Gibeonites. You know, this covenant was broken. That's why you're in a, a famine. And so David took things into his control and, and really, um, you know, the, I think he realized what the situation was. They say, we can't pay us off. We don't want money. We don't want this. Give us <coughs> uh, <coughs> seven. Why they chose the number seven, it's whatever. Um, who knows? But, I mean, it, it does, you know, speak of completeness and, you know, that kind of thing. So maybe that was their thinking. But Saul does just that. Uh, and so he gives them the, uh, the sons. But the king spared Mephibosheth. Remember, he was one of them. Um, the, the son of Saul, Saul's son Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them. So it's weird that he's recognizing the Israel broken oath, a covenant on one hand, but he's willing to keep the covenant here with Mephibosheth. He didn't want to repeat the same mistake twice. That wouldn't have been wise. Because of the oath which the Lord had between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And the king took the two sons of Rizbah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and uh, Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the, the uh, daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalthalite. <laughs> And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hung them on the mountains before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. And they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so you, you see this, this, this you know, thing going on here. And it's just kind of a, it's so foreign to us. We can't even you know, imagine this. But you know, in certain parts of the world, this is how they do business. Um. And then in verse 10 here, you see this mother, Ritzbah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock in the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. And when David was told that Ritzbah, the daughter of Ea, the concubine of Saul, had what he had done, uh, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them uh, from the public square of Beth-Shane where the Philistines had hanged him on the day the Philistines killed Saul uh, on Gilboa. And when he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. So this worked, okay? So, I mean, obviously they had a uh, uh, issue with the Gibeonites and David through 
kind of reaching out to the Lord. That's, that's how he resolved this. He went to the Lord first, and the Lord made it very plain what the issue was. I think a lot of times in our lives we have issues, and we don't know what they are, and we try to figure them out on our, on our own, and we end up getting frustrated, and it never works. We just need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, show me what to do here. How do I resolve this situation? It could be a conflict with somebody. It could be an issue with whatever. I mean, just, just have a teachable spirit, and, and that's kind of what, what David had here. And he wasn't prideful in the matter. He kind of took, took the issue at hand and, um, and dealt with it. And finally, the famine ended, and God restored the land back to uh, prosperity. And so it's kind of an interesting um, picture of God's mercy, of God's grace. And then here in chapter, or verse 15, you have a war with the Philistines that develops. And so this is just kind of 15 and 22, go quick here, because it's just a, a list of their military accomplishments of, of four of David's soldiers. And so it tells us here that there was a war between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew uh, weary. And uh, Ishbi Binob, one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, uh, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, uh, came uh, to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the name of Israel, or the lamp of Israel, excuse me. And so, you know, here it says after, in verse 18, after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and then uh, Sibache the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants, and there was war again with the Philistines at Gob, and uh, Elahan, the son of Jera, or whatever, and the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath, the Kittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Um, this isn't this is kind of an odd thing because I thought David killed Goliath, right? So there's, there's a couple different answers here. Um, basically, some people say that, well, it should be the brother of Goliath. Uh, there's some translations that read the brother of Goliath in the original Hebrew. Um, and there's some translations that don't have that in there. So it may have been an omission, okay? Um, so it, it should probably read uh, Elhanan, killed the brother of Goliath. Um, MacArthur says there's a second possible solution in that Elhanan and David may be different names for the same person, which probably isn't true, but Solomon also had another name. The third solution is perhaps there were just two giants named Goliath. <laughs> okay, so it's kind of a silly thing, but it's, it's probably just a, it should be the brother of Goliath. And it continues there, and it just lists these, these battles that they had, and there's war at Gath, verse 20, and uh, there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand, six toes on every, each foot, 24 in number. He was also, it's weird how they get these details. And he also uh, was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of uh, Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And so once again, God is 
you know, restored David as king, and he's having accomplishments here. He's uh, being blessed with peace in the land, prosperity in the land. And so when you, you stop and think about that, that really it's, it speaks of God's grace. It speaks of God's mercy. It's sometimes it's hard to read these chapters and think, well, what, what does this, how does this apply? But if you look underneath the surface, you can always see a picture of God's sacrifice for us um, through, cro- through the cross of Christ. And uh, you see that uh, in a couple different ways here.